Well, good evening, everyone. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles, take them out, turn them open to Mark chapter 11. My name is Andrew. I serve as a pastor here and have the privilege of walking through our passage this evening, Mark chapter 11. And as you get there, just kind of put your finger on verse 27. Uh, we're going to be covering the swath of scripture that our friend Becky read for us just a moment ago. And as you do so, let me just invite your imagination uh, for a second. Well, imagine that you and Stephen Hawking became good friends. Stephen Hawking, of course, is the famed, renowned physicist, big brain kind of guy. And, and then you also became friends with Elon Musk, the CEO of, of Tesla, who's an innovative thinker, a technological wizard. And suppose the three of you got together and somehow you managed to build a time machine. And you got in this time machine and you went back to the first century world and you stepped into the first century Galilean world and you began to, and somehow you got connected with Jesus and his disciples and you began following them around as he was ministering to the people, as he was engaging in the public ministry that he executed for about three years, all the way up to uh, this final week in the life of Jesus where he's entering Jerusalem en route to be crucified and and you've been listening to all the things he's been saying. You've been observing all the things that he's been doing. Perhaps as you've been journeying through the Gospel of Mark, you, you have a little bit of an idea of what that type of stuff is. But let me ask you, what do you think would, what aspect of Jesus' life and ministry would leave the most lasting impression upon you? What do you think would stick? What do you think would, would dig deep into your attention and dig deep into your affections? What, what, what would leave the most lasting impression upon you if you were to do that? Well, many of you perhaps would point out, well, it was the kindness of Jesus. It, he, I was struck deeply by the kindness of who Jesus is. And others might say, well, it was the love of Jesus, just the way in which he loved people. That's what struck me. That's what uh, really got after me and got into who I am. And others might say, well, it was the compassion of Jesus. It was his willingness to love people that nobody else loved and to extend compassion towards those who were hurting that he had the opportunity to help. It's the compassion of Jesus that perhaps would leave a lasting impression on many of us if we were to uh, transfer back and just kind of walk with Jesus for some time. But what's interesting, if you read through the Gospel of Mark and if you pay attention really closely to the types of things that Mark accentuates about Jesus, there's one aspect of Jesus' life and ministry that we might not consider to be to be that which would make the big impression upon us, and that is his authority. You see, all throughout this gospel, Mark has been accentuating the authority of Christ. It's as though the authority of Christ has left the most lasting impression upon uh, not only uh, Mark, who's writing this, but perhaps what he learned from Peter, who discipled him in the faith and and then Mark went and began writing this gospel, and he's putting the accent on the authority of Jesus. And I know that may surprise many of us because we live in the Pacific Northwest. And I don't know if you know this, but the Pacific Northwest is not known for its glad submission to authority. Uh, authority isn't something that we gravitate to and that, that we love deeply here. In fact, the people who originally migrated out here to settle this region, they did so because they wanted to get away from authority. And so they wanted to shirk the established authorities that was present in New England and the places they were fleeing from to come out here and to settle and to build a life. And so authority isn't something that we gladly submit to. It's not something we eagerly talk about. Not too long ago, I was walking by Starbucks in downtown or right down the street here in Fremont and I saw a sign that was 
posted on one of the fences that said, do not sit, do not sit here. And over that sign, there was a, somebody came in with some spray paint and said, do not tell me what to do. And uh, that's, that's, that's kind of the idea. That's kind of the swath from which our culture and our context is, is, is cut. And so to say that the authority of Christ is what Mark intends to leave, is perhaps what Mark intends to call our attention to, to be one of the most lasting, most impactful aspects of Jesus' life and ministry may catch many of us off guard. This is why a guy by the name of James Edwards would summarize the gospel of Mark with these words. He said that the characteristic of Jesus that left the most lasting impression upon his followers, his disciples, and caused the greatest offense to his opponents was his sovereign freedom and magisterial authority. So tonight, we're, we're going to think about the authority of Christ. We're going to think about it because that's the element of Jesus' life and ministry that is really accentuated in tonight's passage. And we're going to look at it because I want us to really examine how our hearts respond to his authority. And we're going to do that by looking at how some religious leaders responded to the authority of Christ. And we're going to be honest about how what we see them doing to Jesus in this text are things that our hearts tend to do when it comes to his authority in our lives. And so here you've got this passage beginning in verse 27. And actually this kickstarts an entire section where religious leaders confront Jesus with a series of questions. And tonight and the next week, you're going to cover a few more of those questions. But they really, they pose four questions designed to trip Jesus up. These are questions that they ask of Jesus, hoping to get Jesus to make a mistake and to say something wrong or to say something dumb that would somehow discredit him in the eyes of the crowds that were around him, somehow uh, kind of pull the rug out from underneath his feet. They're looking for a way to trip up Jesus and so over the course of a couple of chapters, they're going to raise all kinds, they're going to raise four questions that Jesus has to deal with. They're going to ask him about his authority, which is the question we're talking about tonight. Then they're also going to ask him about what's, what, what about paying taxes and doing those t- types of things. They're going to ask a question about uh, the, the resurrection, whether or not there really will be a resurrection in the end and They're going to ask about what the greatest commandment is. And understand that as you walk through this passage on deep into chapter 12, the religious leaders are not asking these questions because they are seeking answers. They're asking these questions because they are seeking a certain answer. That's how religious people ask questions. Religious people are not like disciples. Religious people ask questions seeking certain answers. And if the answers given do not match with what they want to hear, that's when they become hostile. That's when they become aggressive. That's when they become dismissive. A disciple, on the other hand, asks questions because they are seeking answers. They just want to know what truth is. And so in our lives and in our church, we want to ask questions. But we want to ask questions because we're seeking answers, not because we're seeking certain answers. And so you have this exchange where these religious leaders come to Jesus and they ask him a series of questions. 
on about four different issues. And, and when they do, they're clearly trying to trap him. They're clearly trying to discredit him. They're trying to do these things. But what I love about Jesus is the way he handles these guys' questions. He fills these questions like Robinson Cano fills a ground ball. I mean, he scoops them up, he throws them out. 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 So much so that at the end of the exchange, after the fourth question, check out what's said in chapter 12, verse 34. It gets to a point where it says, no one dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> no one tried to ask him any more questions. No more, nobody tried to set any more traps to Jesus because they, they just kept failing at it because the way Jesus was handling their questions. Nobody wanted to challenge him. They discovered he's too wise. He's too much. He's too good. I can't handle this. I, I imagine after the first question, there was a group of people who just kind of sat back looking what would happen and they see what goes down in today's passage. And then another group comes up and they ask Jesus another question. You imagine members of that first group just kind of sitting back and shaking their head, wondering these guys don't know what they're getting into, trying to ask Jesus these questions. And then with each question, that group gets bigger. So that by the end of the day and by the end of that exchange, everyone's like, wow, look at these guys. They think they're going to get Jesus. And they're just shaking their heads, ashamed of what's about to go down. Because ultimately, what you're going to see in how Jesus fills these questions is him um, exercising and really embodying the wisdom of God, handling them in ways that is appropriate, that is truthful, and that is ultimately effective. But the first question we're looking at tonight concerns this question of authority. We're thinking about his authority, and it starts in verse 27. It says, they, referring to Jesus and his disciples, they came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking, get this, they were walking in the temple. That's the location, that's the setting for all of these exchanges. And that's important for reasons we'll see in a moment. So he's in the temple. And then we're told that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to Jesus. Now, these three groups together represented what's known as the uh, Sanhedrin. This was the official governing body of the temple. This was the ruling force in Jerusalem. This was a group of people that was empowered by the Roman government to handle a lot of issues on Rome's behalf in Jerusalem. They were to help keep the peace. They were to help execute law. And so they would, they would oversee cases if, if cases concerned something of a doctrinal controversy or a doctrinal issue. They would, they would oversee civil cases. They had a lot of power and a lot of authority. They were the official ruling class in this moment. The one thing they couldn't do, and you'll see this later in the Gospels, that this Sanhedrin, this ruling board, this authoritative group, they couldn't try uh, capital punishment cases. So if they ever wanted to put somebody to death, say someone like Jesus, they, they would have to bring Jesus before uh, a Roman official. He'd have to go before Pilate and get approval there. But aside from that, they could do a lot. They had a lot of authority. They were the most, uh, this group was in charge. And they come to Jesus and they ask him a question in verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things? Now, these things refers back to what we looked at last week when Jesus cleared house in the temple. When he pushed everyone out of the court of the Gentiles because they were crowding out the concerns of God with their money changing and the, what they had set up shop, do it, well, what was going on there, Jesus didn't approve of. So he 
drove everybody out. And you saw an aggressive Jesus in that moment. And, and so now this group has come to him. That what, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? In other words, they're asking Jesus, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to do the things that you are doing or that you just did? And so you have this moment where they are approaching Jesus with, with this question. And the reason they're approaching Jesus with this question is because Jesus' authority, what he's been doing in the temple, is now challenging them. It's happening in the temple, the place where this ruling group, this is the foundation of their identity. This is the place for their community. This is where their relevancy is found. All of it is tied to the temple. Jesus is challenging that. So now they've come to challenge Jesus. Because anytime Jesus leverages his authority in a way that is perceived to threaten someone, say it threatens our identity, it threatens our community, or it threatens our purpose, a lot of times we respond in similar ways that these, this Sanhedrin does in this text, where we too tend to resist the authority of Christ. And we do it in different ways, but we still do it. We tend to resist the authority of Christ when he challenges the foundation of our identity, our community, and our purpose. And so their question here is revealing how they're resisting his authority. They're not asking this really because they want to know the answer. They're asking this in such a way to put Jesus in his place. You are not a part of our group. You are an untrained rabbi from some podunk town called Nazareth. Who are you to be doing these things? They're resisting his authority with this question. But notice how Jesus responds. Jesus doesn't respond in this moment by answering their question. He doesn't give them an answer. I think he's being incredibly wise in this moment because sometimes when people ask us questions that are hostile in nature, the best thing we can do is not give them an answer to their question. The best thing we can do is offer up our own question. And so Jesus responds to their question with his own question. Listen to what he says in verse 29. He says, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. He responds with his own question. And you see Jesus doing this often when people come to him with hostile, agenda-driven questions. He asks his own questions. And I think there's something to be gleaned here. And so on a kind of a side note, there was a guy by the name of Randy Newman. Randy Newman used to work with Campus Crusade for Christ, which is this ministry that takes place in, on college campuses all across our country and even around the world in some places. And several years ago, Randy Newman wrote a book called Questioning Evangelism. Now, that title, don't misinterpret it, Questioning Evangelism does not mean we question the validity of evangelism. He's not saying, well, should we share the gospel or not? Maybe we should. He's saying, no, there's an approach to evangelism that prioritizes uh, asking questions. And he says, after studying a lot of the Gospels, and he has a Jewish background, which kind of puts him really close to kind of the Jewish culture in the Gospels. And he said this was a common uh, practice in the first century among the rabbis. Rabbis were very good at asking questions. Jesus was the best at asking questions. We would do well to learn to ask questions. 
And so this book, Questioning Evangelism, is designed to help train people like us in our efforts to make Jesus known, not by straight up applying or answering every question that comes our way, but learning to ask good questions ourselves. It's a way in which you and I can, when we learn to ask good questions of those that we're engaging and those that we are loving and those that we're serving with the gospel, if we learn to just drop a good question in our conversations, it's kind of like taking a rock and putting it in their shoe. A good question has a way of staying with a person. A good question has a way of kind of nagging at a person when when they leave the conversation. A a good question just kind of goes wherever they go. It it sticks in their minds. It kind of gnaws at them and nags them for a while. It, It forces them to process. And so I think when you see Jesus interacting with these religious officials and the way that he tends to answer questions with questions, I think you and I would do well uh, to follow suit and to learn to follow suit. That we would learn to ask good questions and just drop some rocks in people's shoes, something that can stick with them. Now, so when Jesus asks this question, he says, um, listen to the questions that he asks in verse 30. Listen to the wisdom behind what he says. He says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it for one another because they basically had two options. This was a brilliant question because it pushed them into thinking, well, if I say this, then that's going to happen. If I say that, then that's going to happen. They say, well, if I say uh, John the Baptist is from heaven, then, then the question would be, why am I not listening to Jesus? Because John the Baptist told me to listen to Jesus earlier in this gospel. You have this moment where John the Baptist says, after me comes someone who is mightier than I, someone who's the straps of whose sandals I cannot untie, someone who's stronger than me, someone who's greater than me. And so John the Baptist had delivered that message. That person is Jesus. And so if they say John the Baptist was from heaven, that he was a prophet of God, then I've got to listen to Jesus. I've got to make a decision about who Jesus is, the Christ, the son of the living God. But they didn't want to say that, did they? They don't want to answer that because that would, give, that would give Jesus the credibility they're trying to destroy. So the other option is say, well, if I say he's from men, if I say he's just doing his own thing, he's not authorized by God. John the Baptist wasn't a prophet. He was just doing his own thing, a crazy guy out in the wilderness. Then, then I'm going to make the people mad because John the Baptist was a popular guy. John the Baptist had quite a following and they didn't want to step on his people's toes that they needed to be viewed a certain way by the masses. And so if they discredit John, then they're going to lose their own credibility in the eyes of the people. You see the brilliance behind what Jesus has done. He's asked a question that lays out two options and they have to pick one. There's no other, there's no other way out of the trap that Jesus has now turned on them. This would be similar to you and I asking the question, who do you say that Jesus is? And if you and I are honest about what the Gospels reveal about Jesus, there's really only, some say three, but we'll say there's really only two options. All things considered, when it comes to what Jesus says and what Jesus does in the Gospels, either you and I have to conclude that he is God or that he was a delusional human being, a madman, a a lunatic. There's really no other options if we're considering everything that Jesus says and does in the gospel. Well, this is the type of thing that Jesus is doing to the Pharisees. And that's the type of thing you and I need to do. We need to take into consideration who Jesus is and get to the two options. And then ultimately we have to make a decision.
Ultimately, we have to decide what it is we believe about Jesus. Ultimately, we have to respond to the authority of God in the person of Christ. We have to get to that point. We don't want to do what the, what the, San, what the Sanhedrin does in this passage. They're resisting the authority of Christ so much so that you get down to verse 33. They find themselves trapped by Jesus. They can't say one way or another. So look at how they respond. They say in verse 33, we don't know. We can't answer your question, Jesus. And it's not that they couldn't answer his question. It's that they were unwilling to. They didn't want to go in one of the two directions that Jesus gave them. So they say in verse 33, we do not know. And then here's perhaps one of the most frightening things about that. Right after they say, we do not know, listen to what Jesus says. Jesus then says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And the reason why that is so challenging, the reason why that is so challenging is because if you and I if we do not commit ourselves to an opinion about Jesus, Jesus is not going to commit himself to us. In other words, you have to answer the question Jesus asks us earlier in Mark chapter 8, who do you say that I am? You can't sit on the fence in response to that question. You can't respond to Jesus' question with silence. You cannot say, we do not know. Because it's not that we don't know. We have the Gospels. We have the evidence. The question is, are we willing to know? Are we willing to answer that question? And the reason why so many of us are unwilling to answer that question the reason why we resist the authority of Christ, quite frankly, is because we're afraid of the changes he will require of us. You see, lurking underneath all the intellectual questions we like to ask in our lives as we journey through the world that is, lurking underneath all the questions that we ask are always the, these fears and and when we are unable to respond to who Jesus is, it's not always because we have this well thought out, reasoned uh, position of unbelief. Usually it's because all of our questions are under, there's an undercurrent of fear that, well, if Jesus has this kind of authority, if he is who he says he is, and if he did what he said he did, then that means things in my life must change. And I'm afraid of change. And so fear keeps us from making a decision about Jesus so often. But the challenge of this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees is you and I do not commit ourselves to a position on Jesus. Jesus will not commit himself to us. We have to answer the question that Jesus asks all of us in Mark chapter 8. Who do you say that I am? Now, this is challenging because we live in a postmodern society. We live in a postmodern society that loves asking questions, but we do not like hearing answers. We like to ask questions, we don't like to give answers. We like to just 
theorize about everything, but we don't like to put our feet down upon anything. We live in the type of culture that says it's okay for you to believe everything, anything you want. Just don't believe it so firmly that you'll bank your life upon it. That's the postmodern world we live in. That's the philosophical current that we are a part of. But the challenge of the gospel is that we can't let that dictate us. We have to come to a conclusion about who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. We cannot say we don't know. We cannot be unwilling to make a decision about who Christ is. And I know this is hard because this goes against the grain of some of our most cherished values, one of which is the whole idea of being open-minded. The reason why we love asking questions and we don't really like answers when they're given is because asking questions, it it gives the impression of being open-minded. You know, open-minded is how we all want to be. Nobody wants to be perceived as closed-minded. You're not going to go into a job interview and the, the, the the hirer asks you, well, Uh, What's your greatest strengths or what is your greatest weakness? You're not going to tell them you're closed minded, right? That's going to get the interview. That's going to end the interview pretty quick. We don't want to be closed minded. We want to be open minded. But there are two ways of being open minded. There is a courageous form of open mindedness, a courageous form that says, you know, I am willing to be proven wrong. I am honestly willing to be proven wrong. A a courageous open-mindedness that says, I'm going to ask questions, but when answers are given, my mind is capable of closing on a subject or closing on a matter. And that's a good thing. It takes courage to get there. It's a courageous open-mindedness that says, "I I am not going to prejudice my conclusions. I'm not going to make conclusions before I weigh all the evidence and consider all that's out there. I'm willing to be surprised by what I learn and discover to be true, even if that contradicts what I originally or previously thought about something. A courageous open mind is one that asks good questions and entertains thoughts, but it is one that's willing to close on something solid. But then on the flip side of that, there's a, there's a cowardly open-mindedness. And this cowardly open-mindedness is one that says, I'm never going to make a decision about anything important. I'm not going to make a decision about life's most important matters. I'm just going to sit on the fence because if I sit on the fence, I won't upset anyone. I'm just going to live my life asking questions on some ethereal quest. But I'm not going to commit myself to any answers. And it is then when we need to consider what G.K. Chesterton was getting at in the quote you read earlier. I believe he's right when he says merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. And so eventually you and I have to make decisions about what we believe about the authority of Christ. We cannot resist the authority of Christ in some kind of neutral position. We have to make a decision. But if we resist it too long, eventually that resistance will devolve into rejection. This is why Jesus would then shift gears in chapter 12 verse 1. And he would move into speaking to this Sanhedrin in a parable. And he would lay out this parable showcasing what happens when people reject the authority of God in all kinds of ways. You have this parable laid out where we see resistance turning into rejection because our hearts tend to move in that direction. If we resist 
for too long, we will eventually begin to reject. And this is what's going down here. This is the last parable in a book that has a lot of parables, and it's a pretty important parable. Jesus says, you know, there was a man who planted a vineyard. Now, the man in the parable refers to God the Father. The vineyard there refers to the nation of Israel. All throughout the Old Testament, the vi- Israel is referred to as a vineyard. The language that Jesus is using here is drawn from Isaiah chapter 5, clearly showcasing that this vineyard is Israel. God planted them in the world and intended Israel to bear fruit. And then God raised up leaders for Israel who were intended to nurture the development of that fruit so they could be the people God intended them to be for the world in which they live. The problem was the people who, got, who found themselves in charge at different stages in Israel's history, when they were confronted by these servants or God's messengers, they never responded. They resisted and rejected, violently rejecting the messengers or the servants that God would send them to, to see if fruit was being produced. And so there's this litany of moments where you have these servants coming in and they're getting beaten. They're being killed. They're one after another is coming in and none of them are being received well. All of them are being rejected. And so basically in this parable, Jesus is outlining the history of Israel and ultimately what went down in the lives of so many of God's prophets. So many people who stepped into the nation and began to speak on God's behalf. Guys like Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet who was beaten and put in stocks. Guys like Isaiah, who history tells us was a prophet that was sawn in two. Guys like Zechariah, who, was, who got stoned in the temple according to 2 Chronicles chapter 24. Now he got stoned, not in a Washington sense. It was It wasn't uh, that type of stoning. He got stoned in the Middle Eastern sense. He was drilled with rocks. That, That guy was beaten. He was rejected because of what he represented. Many people were treated that way. And then there comes a point where there was one final servant that the father was gonna send, that the master was gonna send and and check up on the vineyard. It says in verse six, he had still one other, a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them, saying, they're going to respect my son. They're going to listen to my son. They're not going to resist him. They're not going to reject him. But look what happens. Verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. The beloved son, Jesus is saying, this is how you're going to treat me. And a few chapters later, that's exactly how they treat him. They beat him, they crucify him, they reject the authority of Christ to the point of crucifying him. They reject the authority of Christ because they were so afraid of the changes he would make to their identity, the changes he would make to their community, the changes he would make to their sense of purpose. They did not trust that what Jesus was coming to do was for their good, so they rejected him. And if we're honest, the reason why so many of us tend to resist and to reject the authority of Christ in our lives, it is because we do not trust that what God intends for us is ultimately good. We don't trust it. We think that 
If we give him authority, then we'll lose our sense of freedom. And we don't want to lose our sense of freedom, so we reject Christ. We reject his authority in our lives. But a guy named C.H. Spurgeon, he would say something about how God responds to our rejection. And I find his words incredibly moving. Listen to what he says about how God responds to our tendency to resist the authority of Christ and to reject the authority of Christ. He says this. He said, if you reject Jesus, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring us resurrection. Jesus is love manifest. That Jesus would, would leverage his authority in, in the face of our rejection of him. He leverages it in such a way to show love to us. To show love to us. This is why ultimately you get to verse 10 and 11 and you have this picture of redemption, this picture of a reversal where, where we're told that have you not read this scripture, the stone that the builders rejected and the metaphor changes, goes from a vineyard to a building and said the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. It's an unbelievable reversal that God works through the rejection of Christ all done in the name of love, all done in the name of redemption, all done in the name of leveraging his authority in such a way that should leave us astonished. It's this type of loving authority that should melt our hearts. It's this type of loving authority that should cause us to be willing to lose our illusion of freedom. You see, the great irony behind this whole thought of authority, that we resist and reject the authority of Christ, the great irony is that we do that because we think that in so rejecting that, we can live free, we can set our own path, we can be our own people. But the reality is, freedom is an illusion in this world. Freedom doesn't exist. If you reject the authority of Christ, you do not graduate to, a, to an autonomous life. What you end up doing, if you reject the authority of Christ, you will inevitably replace the authority of Christ with another authority, with another master who will not love you nearly as well. Will not love you nearly as well. Authority figures in your life, whether they be people, places, or things, with some aspect of their created order that will not redeem you in the way that Jesus seeks to redeem you. Authority figures who want to rule and govern your life from the top down, not from the bottom up. Notice where Jesus is ruling here. It says that Jesus becomes the cornerstone. You know what the cornerstone is? The cornerstone isn't the capstone. It's not what's put on top of a building. The cornerstone is what's put underneath the building. It sets the trajectory for the building of a, of a structure. And this cornerstone accounts for the stability of a structure. This cornerstone accounts for the symmetry of a structure. The cornerstone is the most important stone, but it is underneath the structure. Do you understand that in the gospel, Jesus lowers himself in order to lift us up? 
This is how he uses his authority in our lives by coming underneath us, by becoming a cornerstone in our lives to add stability and symmetry so that we might grow and become the people God originally intended us to be. And yes, that involves a people who are willing to submit to his authority. I'll illustrate it this way. There, a couple of years ago, I gave my daughter Delaney three fish. And I entrusted her with the responsibility of taking care of these fish. She set up the aquarium, water, all that jazz in her room. And she did a good job. They just died recently. So she kept them alive for a pretty good while. But I remember when I gave Delaney these fish and they were sitting in the water, I would sit in her room and we'd talk about the fish. And I would say, Delaney, do you think the fish like being in that water? And she'd say, yeah. And I'd say, why do you think that is? And she'd say, well, because if they were out of the water, they'd die. I'd say, that, that's right, Delaney. That's right. If those fish ever got out of that water, they would die. I said, imagine what it would be like if, say, your, your three fish began conspiring and saying, hey, you know, I feel cramped in this aquarium and I want to make a break for it. I'm looking through the glass and I see all the space out in your room. Let's help each other kind of climb up or, I don't know, swim up and jump out of the aquarium and, and experience the freedom of life in all that space. I said, Delaney, what do you think would happen then? And she'd say, well, they, they would die. And I'd say, yes. I said, Delaney, you realize a fish is only free to be a fish when they submit to, the, to how God had wired them to be. And so they may think that they'd be free if they had more space and more room to run, but the reality is they would become a slave to their new environment and they would die. There's only one place where they can stay alive and that's in the tank, that's in the water. Well, when God created you and I, and he created us in his image. He wired us a certain way. He wired us in a certain way where we are to live in relationship with him. And we are only free to be the people God intends us to be when we are living in the habitat for which we are created. And that habitat is God himself. Anytime we try to shirk his authority and go our own way or replace it, resist it, reject it, or replace it with any other authority in this world that always, always leads to death. We are only free to be the people God created us to be when we are living in relationship with our creator. When we are submitting to what he says about how life should be lived. When we are submitting to what he says about Jesus being his beloved son. When we are submitting to what he says about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. When we are submitting to what God says about everything. That's when we are free to live. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus lowers himself in order to lift us up in that regard. He could have... He could have flexed his muscles and prevented himself from being crucified on the cross, but he didn't do it. He didn't do it. He was the stone that was rejected out as worthless, that was crucified. And God flipped the script on, our, on everyone's rejection and turned Jesus into the cornerstone. And so now we find ourselves in relationship with Jesus, one who lowers himself in order to lift us up and all of a sudden now, when we submit to 
his authority, Jesus then begins to realign our lives with the purposes of God. Jesus begins to realign our lives with the purposes of God. Now, let me show you what I mean by that. One of the things I love about the Bible is that there's so many relational connections between a lot of the people who, not everybody, but a lot of the people who wrote the books of the New Testament. Well, the author of this gospel was a guy named Mark. Mark was discipled by a guy named Peter. Church history is very clear that Peter discipled Mark and kind of built him up in the faith. And so when you read Peter's letters, you see a lot of connections between what Mark emphasizes and what Peter emphasizes. And so I want you to hold this spot in Mark chapter 12. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter, chapter 1. And I'm going to show you where, what this means for us. How submission to the authority of Christ realigns our lives with God's purposes. Listen to the language Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 2. Listen to what he says. And you're going to, get a, you're going to see realignment taking place. Verse 4. Peter's writing to the church and he says, As you come to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you see the honor of making a decision about Jesus? You believe in him. You will not be put to shame. You will get a cornerstone to your life that will stabilize you, that will give you symmetry, that will help you grow and be the person God intended you to be. He's saying you will not be put to shame in that regard. Verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, those who trust in Jesus, but for those who do not believe. And he's echoing some of the things that Jesus said in his parable about how God was going to judge those who rejected Jesus definitively. And he says this. He says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you... You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is showing us how submission to the authority of Christ realigns our lives with the purposes of God. He's showing us how our faith in Jesus enables us to receive a new identity. And we become the people of God. We become chosen and precious. We become living stones. We become those who are chosen, a royal, holy, a people for God's own possession. We receive a new identity when we submit to the authority of Christ and we enter a new community. Everything that Peter's saying in this passage, he's emphasizing the church. This is a shared dynamic. It's something we enjoy together. We enter a new community, and in the process, we become the people God intended us to be. And with that comes a new purpose. Identity, community, and purpose. The very things that the Sanhedrin feared losing are the very things Jesus intends to give his disciples identity, you are mine. Community, you are mine together. Purpose, 
Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Make much of the Jesus who lowered himself to lift you up. Build your life upon that reality. Live in light of that authority and you will fulfill the purpose for which you were created. This is what's going down in this text. This is why. This is why we don't want to shrink back from the authority of Christ. This is why we don't want to just walk away from Jesus the way the Pharisees do at the end of this passage. We want to press into Jesus. We want to submit to Jesus. We want to make a decision about Jesus. And we want that decision to be, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, I ask that if there's any hearts right now that are struggling to make a decision about who your son is, I pray that you would give great grace for a decision to be made towards Jesus and not away from Jesus. I pray, Jesus, that you would become the cornerstone of their lives and that you would continue to be the cornerstone for all of your people's lives in this room, that we would enjoy the new identity you've given us, that we would engage the community you've made us a part of, and that we would live out the purpose you've entrusted us. God, we thank you for realigning our lives and we pray that you would continue that you would continue the process of realignment as we grow in understanding of what it means to live in submission to your authority. God, we love you and we thank you for loving us in the way in which you have and the way in which you do. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.